Hi, everyone. My name is Ken Cross, and I'm an alcoholic. And I want to thank uh, Laura. And I don't know if Pej is in here for asking me to at least not drive down, but to show up in Zoom in Laguna. I want to thank my friend Andrew for being the first 10-minute speaker. What he didn't talk about was is that I was his sponsor when he was new. And the other thing that he didn't mention is that he got out of the entertainment business and he went back to school and he's soon to be a practicing therapist, which takes a lot of work. So, you know, congratulations on that too. That's a big deal. I mean, I thought about going back to school, but I never made it. You know, I was a high school dropout. And uh, just for some basic info, my sobriety dates February 3rd, 1983 which means last month I turned 38 years sober. Those of you that weren't born yet don't need to tell me that. It's really the last thing I wanna know. I was 31 years old when I got sober. If you do the math, it means I'm gonna be 70 years old this year. And uh, as Andrew said too, you know, I come from a family of alcoholics. My mother died of alcoholism at 47 years old. She was drunk driving, flipped her car, broke her neck and back and was dead. My stepfather, who was 52, was killed in a drug deal in a shootout. We never know what happened to him. He was a patch-wearing biker. You know, just I grew up around some really insane, alcoholic, violent behavior. You know, I lived in a house where you could be at dinner and anything could come flying across the table at you, whether it was a knife or a radio or a plate of food. I mean, it was a very, very crazy place. And right after I turned 17, I left home and thought, I got to get the hell out of here. You know, I started drinking when I was 13. I started, I learned how to drink vodka and fill it back up with water. I learned how to drink scotch and fill it back up with water. I learned how to drink whiskey and fill it back up with water. And amazingly enough, I never got caught. So I don't know how that worked. And then obviously, you know, what happens with most kids once we start experimenting with getting high, I moved on to those really hardcore drugs like cleaning fluids and glue and uh you know all these other crazy things that we were sniffing back in the 60s and when i was 14 somebody gave me some pot and some hash and then eventually it led to pills and i was one of those kind of kids who somebody would just stick out their hand and say do you want one i wouldn't even ask what it was i would just take the pills and take them you know I might be taking LSD, I might be taking barbiturates, I had no idea. And the really incredible part was I didn't give a shit. You know, if it was going to alter the way I felt, I was more than willing to take it because I didn't want to have anything to do with the way I felt. You know, I was never comfortable in my own skin. I remember walking home from elementary school when I was in second grade and feeling like already I didn't fit in. You know, I've always described myself as kind of a bit of an, an extroverted introvert. You know, I'm really good in public situations, but I'd much rather be at home alone on the couch, not having to deal with another human being. You know, human beings were never my forte of having to deal with. And, um, you know, I was, I was blessed enough when I was a young man, I got caught breaking into a rock and roll concert. And the next thing I knew, I had a career in the music business for the next 20 years, you know, and I got to travel around the world. I got to work for some big acts. I got to do things that, you know, I only dreamed of as a kid, you know, and, um, you know, and my life was all about that lifestyle. You know, it was drugs and rock and roll for all of the 70s and most of the 80s. I finally did my last tour in 1989 when I was five years sober.
And I thought I'd rather be at my men's stag in Venice than hanging out in a snow blizzard in Oslo, Norway with rock stars, you know? My priorities had completely shifted as to what was important. And uh, as I said, by the time I was 17, 18 years old, I was out of my mind. You know, uh, 1969 on New Year's Eve, somebody asked me if I wanted to do some drugs. And I thought, sure, why not? And they said, well, stick out your arm. And that led to 15 years of me being addicted to syringes. And it didn't matter what, the, what was in the syringe. It just mattered that that was the delivery system of choice. And it didn't matter if it was LSD. It didn't matter if it was barbiturates or opium or cocaine or heroin. You know, that was my life. And I was one of those people who thought, I'm never going to be like my parents. I'm never going to be an alcoholic. You know, I saw what that did to them. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to be one of them. You know, I was a little Greenwich Village hippie. I ended up in Atlanta, Georgia and Macon, Georgia for about five years before I moved out to LA. And I just partied and drank every single day. You know, in the business I was in, we had free booze everywhere. We started drinking at 10 o'clock in the morning. We held off on the real alcohol until about four or five in the afternoon. And we tried to hold off of the class A narcotics until about showtime. But, uh, you know, it was a, just a life of complete insanity. You know, I never thought I had a problem. I never thought that I was doing anything wrong. I thought everybody else was just lost, you know? And, and I even remember being in Austin, Texas in about 1970, standing out in a, out in a, off a quarry somewhere with the wind blowing in my hair, high as shit on psychedelics. And I was waiting for the alien spaceship to come down and take me away. Cause I thought I don't belong here. I'm not part of this earth. You know, I don't have anything that, that, you know, I just never felt like I fit in at all. You know, and eventually what happened is, is, you know, in about 1980, I'd been working for a certain band for about five years and I got fired by another addict because I couldn't do my job anymore. You know, I'd gotten to be so out of control. I was missing buses or vans to the airport. I was screwing up bad. I was just really really messing up and i got fired from this tour and i came home back to la my wife had already moved out of over the house she was living with a coke dealer down the street she had her priorities straight and i thought man i gotta go dry out you know and i had some family in tucson arizona and i thought well i'll go to tucson arizona i'll drink some light beer and smoke some lot light pot and i'll get my act together you know and, and that lasted about six months because the only life i knew was you know, rock and roll music, nightclubs and drug dealing. That was the only way I knew how to exist. I never had a nine to five job in my life. I never had any kind of a situation where I had to show up or be responsible like that outside of the music business or outside of the nightclub business or whatever. And within six months of being in Tucson, I was right back into working in a nightclub. I knew all the Coke dealers in town. I had free alcohol every night. It was right back to where I was. My sister was a diabetic, so I had easy access to her implements and I was, you know, in full-blown insanity. And I lasted about two years in Tucson, Arizona. And by the time that two years was running out, I had done some things for some people that I shouldn't have been involved with. And uh, I knew that I had to get out of town in the middle of the night. And I left about two o'clock in the morning. I had a little cash from a Coke deal gone sideways that I took sideways and stole a car, came back to LA. I had no idea what I was going to do. You know, I was basically on the run 
My family had said they wouldn't even spit on my grave. The girl that I'd been seeing said she didn't want to ever have anything to do with me again. You know, I had just destroyed every single relationship, every single opportunity. And I was only 31 years old at that time. And I had no idea what I was going to do or how I was going to survive. And I came back to LA. I stole, I'm six foot six, which is hard to tell on Zoom. But my bright idea was I stole a Volkswagen and I was living in a Volkswagen, which isn't the smartest thing. When you roll over on a stick shift in the middle of the night, it's not too comfortable. And I was parking the car up in the hills in Hollywood. I was stealing lunch meat from Ralph's because it was flat and I could stick it down my pants. You know, I was cleaning up in parks. I was washing up in parks where, you know, it was just insane. I was in a completely insane place. I was making phone calls, looking for couches to crash on, somebody maybe to find me some work. I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, and finally, one person, and it was another friend of it, it was my friend that I'd known since 1970 that got Andrew to come to his first AA meeting. And um, he said that he would meet me at, at Barney's Beanery in West Hollywood for dinner. And I thought, this is great. He owned a studio. I thought, you know, he'll take pity on me. He'll buy me a beer. He'll buy me a dinner. You know, everything will be cool if, you know, maybe he'll let me crash at his house. And he showed up and he said, hey, man, by the way, there's another guy who's joining us for dinner. And I went, well, that's cool. Who's that? And he goes, well, it's this guy, Charlie, and he's my sponsor. And I went, what are you talking about? What's a sponsor? And he goes, you know, he goes, well, I've been in AA for a year and a half and I have 90 days clean and sober. And I'm like, what does that even mean? You know, it's like in rock and roll, clean and sober was not words that were bantered around. You know, there were no treatment centers. We didn't have Blue Cross Blue Shield. Sober living was not an option. You know, I thought I thought easy does it on a bumper sticker meant don't tailgate. You know, I was completely clueless when it came to 12 step programs or anything along those lines. And this guy, Charlie, showed up and he had 11 months of sobriety. And you know how two new guys are when they're all fired up about AA. They were going to save my life. They were going to tell me what, what was wrong with me and how to fix it. You know, and they gave me the good old talk about if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, why don't you come to some meetings with us? And my friend said that if I was willing to go with him to a meeting with him the next night, that I could come crash at his house. I could come work at his studio. They would take care of me for the next day. And I thought, well, I scored. I got everything out of this that I wanted. You know, and that next day when I woke up, it's not like when I woke up that day sleeping on his couch, I thought, well, this seems like a good day to get clean and sober. I'm spiritually bankrupt. My life is unmanageable. You know, my thought was, how am I going to get over for the day? How am I going to survive one more time? What am I going to do to make it till tomorrow? You know, that was my only thought. I hung out at his studio. I did some stuff that night. They took me to this meeting. The speaker got up and, you know, he had some time. He was wearing a Rolex. It was in West Hollywood at the Motion Picture Health and Welfare Fund. And he talked about, you know, making millions of dollars and losing millions of dollars. And now he's making money again. And he got on his knees in a men's room stall because he was facing a court case. And I'm like, what the hell is this guy getting on? His, you know, none of it made sense to me. You know, I, I read the steps on the wall and it sounded like Chinese arithmetic. I didn't understand any of it. I didn't relate to him or what it was. And um, and then after the meeting, they opened it up or after the speaker, they opened it up to participation. 
And there was this guy in the back of the room and he raised his hand to share it. He looked like Kramer from Seinfeld. You know, he had this crazy hair that was all stood up. He was kind of tweaker looking. And um, he shared that he had nine months clean and sober and that he talked about that he had relapsed at nine months. And he went on to describe his relapse. And when he talked about his relapse, I related 100% because I didn't know anything about the speaker and about sobriety and what he was talking about. I didn't understand what the steps were. I didn't understand what the purpose of meetings were. But this guy talked about, you know, standing in bathtubs with tinfoil on the window and peeking out of pinholes and talked about, you know, the cops thinking the cops were going to kick in his door in the middle of the night. I related to all that stuff because that was my life, you know. He talked about drinking himself to sleep with a bottle of Jack Daniels to keep the birds from keeping him awake all night, which I used to do on a regular basis. And then he said the first thing in a meeting that made sense to me. He said the reason he was back in meetings is because this is where the hope is. You know, I was 31 years old living in a stolen car and it destroyed every relationship and every opportunity in my life. And hope seemed like a really big deal. You know, hope seemed like a really, really big deal. And when the meeting was over, I went up to the front and the guy that was running the meeting at the time, he was about 17 years sober and he was about 47, 48 years old. And he said, hey, kid, do you have a big book? And I was like, I didn't even know what a big book was. And he handed me a big book and he goes, you know what? You seem like you're one of the sick ones. He goes, I want you to take this book to home and I want you to read chapter three more about alcoholism. And while he and I are talking, my friend John had walked up and said, well, if you're willing to stay clean and sober, and you're gonna to come to meetings, he goes, you can come crash at my house and hang out in my studio for as long as you need to. And I thought, well, what have I got to lose, you know? And I went back to his apartment that night and I opened up the big book. I read chapter three and it hit me after reading two pages, I started to identify. You know, it started to talk about controlling our drinking and I completely identified. It started talking about doing the same thing over and over again you know, and expecting different results. And then it got to the story of the jaywalker, the guy that gets, you know, out of the hospital with his arm and legs and cast and walks out in front of buses. And as I said, you know, I dabbled in injectables for 15 years and there's many times I've OD'd. There's many times I've blacked out. I've blacked out on motorcycles and woken up in emergency rooms having my face operated on. I've blacked out in automobiles and ended up in a creek with water flowing into the car, having to kick out the windshield to get out of the car with absolutely no knowledge. I mean, there are things that I've done. I have no idea riding through the hills of Hollywood on motorcycles in complete blackouts, you know, and I completely identified with the jaywalker story. And by the time I got done reading chapter three, I thought maybe this is what's wrong with me. Maybe I have this disease that they talk about in the book that's called alcoholism. Because as I said, there was no way I was going to be an alcoholic. There was no way I was one of them. You know, there was no way I was going to be like my mother or my stepfather or my aunts or my uncles or my father that I had only met three times in my life. You know, there was just no way I was going to be part of that. And yet when I read the description of alcoholism, I thought, this sounds like something that I'm involved in. This sounds like something that I'm dealing with. And the miracle of that whole story is, is that since I read chapter three, I've never had another drink of alcohol. So how does that happen? You know, I didn't plan on getting sober. I never planned on going to a meeting. I didn't want to read a book that was written by funky old guys smoking cigarettes and fedoras. You know, there was just no way that 
I wanted anything to do with Alcoholics Anonymous or 12-step programs or any of it. And yet I read this story, one chapter in one book, and it was like a light shined on me and said, well, this is what you are. This is what you're going through. Why don't you get willing? You know, and I was just desperate enough to grab onto that, you know, just desperate enough to think maybe I should give this a shot and see if it makes a difference. And, you know, I went for the ride. I decided I'm all in, you know, and I did everything I could. I lived on that man's couch for over five months. You know, I worked as a gopher. I worked as a production assistant. I mean, I did anything for money. I drove that stolen car for the first three years of my sobriety with out of state unregistered plates on it, you know, not knowing what to do. And, uh, you know, I was one of those alcoholic drug addict moves where you're driving and you see a cop in a mirror, your rear view, and you look for the first alley to pull into until he goes by. And, uh, you know, just that insanity. But what I did is, is I became entirely willing to turn my will in my life over to the care of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, they, they used to talk about, and Andrew references, they used to, well, in a sense he references, they used to say, if you kill yourself before you turn five, you're probably killing the wrong person because your head hasn't even come halfway out of your ass yet, you know? And I heard that and I thought, well, I'm gonna get a sponsor and he's gotta have more than five years, you know? And my first sponsor was this big, tall guy. He had a 944 Porsche, a nice red Porsche and a hot blonde. And I thought, well, he's got what I want. Maybe I'll ask him to sponsor me. You know, it didn't work out quite, but we're still friends to this day. He had a little relapse, but he's back now for 15 years. And then one night I was told, you know, why don't you try going to some men's stags? And it turned out that the park that I used to clean up in in Hollywood was having a men's stag that night. I went over to this room and it was your typical men's stag with a bunch of metal chairs in a circle. And I just sat down not knowing anybody in the room. And the guy next to me looked at me and went, hey, you're new, aren't you? I haven't seen you before. And I was like, well, how does he know, you know? And I did not look like this. You have to realize I had 1980s rock and roll hair down about here you know, a giant Afro. And, um, and he said to me, do you have a sponsor? And I said, no. And he goes, well, I'll be your interim sponsor. And by the way, I have a big book meeting at my house. That's a men's tag. I'd like you to come. And it turned out he lived a block and a half away from my friend's place in Hollywood. And the first Wednesday I walked over there and I sat down in this group of men and I was scared to death because I was so intimidated, you know, in the past, in my past life, the only thing men were good for were drugs, work, or your girlfriends, period. End of story, you know? I didn't have any relationships of any depth and weight with any men at all. My father left when I was three, four years old. My stepfather was a complete maniac. I didn't want anything to do with people, you know? And I sat in this room and the man next to me was sitting next to me and he was celebrating his fifth birthday. And it was a big book study. And when he opened up his book, I looked over and realized he had this big book that was underlined in like five different colors of ink with all these scribbles in the sidelines. And when he shared for his birthday, he talked about how what his experiences were and what had been suggested to him from his sponsor and that how he went through the book. And I thought, well, this guy seems like he knows what, you know, he knows what's happening. And I asked him to be my sponsor. And it turned out that he lived a half a block away from where I was crashing. You know, and I went over to his house on a weekly basis and we would go through the big book one line at a time. 
you know, when we, when we, he was, when I got sober, there weren't a lot of treatment centers. There wasn't a lot of Joe and Charlie stuff. There weren't a lot of, you know, people sharing their ideas of how things should be done. But he took me through the book. And when we got to the ABCs, he talked about, well, you've done your first step. You've done your second step. But when we got to the third step, he said, come on, we're going to get on our knees and pray. And I'm like, why am I getting on my knees with another man in Hollywood and holding his hands to say a prayer? It just did not seem right at all. You know, I was so uncomfortable, but you know what? I did everything he suggested. And when he at, when he told me it was time to do a fourth step, you know, I thought I'm going to write this great rock and roll war story and be the victim and tell everybody, poor me this and poor me that. And when I told, you know, I talked to him about, it, he said, oh no, you're not doing that. He goes, you're going to make these columns on a piece of paper and you're going to write like a telegram. You're going to write one sentence. You're going to go down each column and you're going to keep it short and brief. You know, and when I read the part about the big, you know, about the fourth step, I thought, you know, Mr. Jones should get his ass kicked, you know, and I didn't understand any of what was going on in that process, but I did it. And by the time I had six, seven months, I was done. You know, I was done with my fourth step and I made an appointment to go see him. And the one thing that he had told me, other than the columns, he said, when you're done with the columns, he goes on, the last thing I want you to do is I want you to write down the three secrets that you planned on taking to your grave. You know, and I thought, man, I do not want to do that because I was involved in a lot of crazy shit in the 70s with drugs and guns and hookers and, you know, just bizarre, bizarre behavior. And I thought, no way, you know, but I did it. And it was the first time in my adult life when I read that paperwork to him that I'd ever been as honest I could as honest as I could be with another human being because I didn't even know the depths of honesty and dishonesty that I'd been participating in for most of my adult life, you know? And when we got to the end of that and I had to read him those secrets, he didn't laugh, he didn't judge me, he didn't say anything. He said, yeah, I understand. You know, we've all got our stuff, we've all been through that. And then what happened for me was it was the beginning, it talks about on page 75 through 77 with the fifth step, it talks about crossing the broad highway and the beginning of the spiritual experience and how your life really begins to open up once you do a fifth step, you know? And I had exactly the experience that it described in the big book. You know, my life truly began to change. And, um, you know, I was blessed that early on in my recovery, I got involved in another 12-step group that was new and was just taking off in the, in the United States. And so I had an opportunity to be a service. So I had commitments at almost every meeting that I went to, whether it was an AA meeting or an a, a CA meeting. You know, we used to have this meeting. One of the things that I said to my sponsor at about 90 days, and I know a lot of people really, at 90 days, I said, you know what? I think I need a girlfriend. I think I, it's time for me to be in a relationship. You know, I was lonely, as we say, you know, and I thought that a woman would help me feel better. And he said to me, he goes, you know what? He goes, you dating somebody in sobriety is like two garbage trucks meeting head on. And he goes, you can do it, but I'm not going to clean up the mess. He said, you can do anything you want in sobriety as long as you're willing to pay the price. But just know that it's not a good idea. You know, and I said, well, what do you think? And he goes, you can't even have a relationship with a coffee cup. How do you expect to have a relationship with a human being? 
you know, and it's like when sponsor talk, you know, how the hot wind blows by you and, you know, he probably said something really heavy, but you have no idea what he's talking about. And I said, well, what does that mean? I don't have a relationship with a coffee cup. And he said, why don't you go get a cleanup commitment somewhere and come back in six months and we'll talk about it. And in Hollywood at the time, there was a group called the whatever meeting. And it was the first meeting in, of AA in Los Angeles where you could actually identify as a drug addict and not be asked to leave the room. Because in the early 80s, the cocaine epidemic had slammed Hollywood big time. And so there were, you know, there were some crazy actors and stand-up comedians and all these people hanging out in this meeting. It was about 300 people. And, you know, it was just a high energy meeting. And I got a cleanup commitment at that meeting. It was back when we used to smoke in meetings and people would put cigarette butts in empty styrofoam cups. So there'd be coffee all over the place. It was just a mess. And I cleaned up that meeting for a year. And to this day, I am still friends with most of the people that I cleaned up that room with. Every one of us stayed sober, you know? And by the time I got done cleaning up, I really had no desire to date a newcomer woman like I had a year earlier, you know? It was the last thing on my mind. You know, and I had that experience throughout my sobriety where I would say, when we got to six and seven in the big book, I was completely confused by the two paragraphs that you see in the big book. I was like, what's a character defect? What's a shortcoming? I don't understand any of this, you know? I would say to, I would say to the old timers, you know, I'm having a really hard time with character defects. I'm having a hard time with this God thing. Cause I was, you know, my idea of spirituality was through better LSD. You know, I was not raised in a church. I was not, you know, taught anything about religion. You know, my idea of meditating was taking acid and go sitting in the woods somewhere in the desert somewhere and Carlos Castaneda type things, you know. And I said to this old timer, you know, I'm having a hard time with this God thing and this Bill Wilson bright light thing. And he said, well, why don't you just pray for God to reveal himself to you as he really is? And by that time, I'd gotten myself a little one bedroom apartment in Venice and I would lay in bed at night and I would pray and I kept like waiting for the dresser drawers to burst into flames or the white light to come in through the window, you know, and it never happened. It never happened once, you know, and I said to him, look, I pray for these character defects. I pray for God to reveal himself and nothing's happening. And this old timer who was this, he ended up, he was actually the Supreme Court judge for the state of California. And he and I hit it off because we both had a history of riding motorcycles. And he would show me pictures of himself from the 50s. And he looked like Marlon Brando in the wild one with the little hat on and the little leather jackets and stuff. And he said, you know what? Why don't you just be the best tree you can be? And I'm like, what does that even mean? You know, it's one more time, old timers speak. And he said, there's only one Ken Cross that grew up in the family that you grew up in. There's only one Ken Cross that grew up in the environment and that has the situations that you've been involved in. Why don't you find out who you are and just be the best person you can be one day at a time and quit worrying about your character defects and start living by the principles. And I got that. I was like, well, that's easy. I can do that one day at a time if I'm not thinking about the big picture. If I just focus on one day at a time, be the best person I can be. You know, and I've carried that with me for years and most of my character defects have long gone away. You know, I've always had a bit of road rage and a bit of you know, that kind of nonsense. And my sponsor used to make me put a post-it note on my steering wheel that said, you are not a cop.
because I was one of those guys that always wanted to pull people over and drag them out of their car and tell them how wrong they were when they're on the road, you know? And, um, and what happened for me is at about three and a half years of sobriety, I started getting really uncomfortable again. You know, I had a job, I had a, well, I still was driving the stolen car, but I had this life that I had started to create, you know, but that hole in my stomach started to come back and I started to feel uncomfortable. And, you know, I just didn't know what was going on. And I sat down with my sponsor and he said, you know what, maybe it's time for another four step. And he said, but this time, why don't you do it out of the directions that are in the 12 and 12? And I'd had the opportunity at about one year to go on a spiritual retreat to a monastery, a 12 step retreat up in a monastery in the high desert. And it was a bunch of Benedictine monks that had this beautiful place on an orchard. So I had made, I had made friends with this uh, monk who was my age exactly, who had been involved in the church since he was a young man. He'd been a missionary in, Rome, in uh, Africa, he'd studied in Rome. And I called up Francis and said, hey, can I come up there and do some writing and read it to you? And he said, sure, come on, the cabin is open. Why don't you come stay in the cabin? And I went up on a Friday afternoon and I wrote all afternoon. I wrote all night. The next morning I wrote some more. And when I was done, I called him up and said, hey, can we sit down and talk? And I went into his office and I read him this four step. <clears throat> and when I was done, the first thing out of his mouth was, it sounds to me like you haven't developed a relationship with a power greater than yourself. He said a personal relationship with a power greater than yourself. Because that, for that first three and a half years, I'd been acting as if. I'd been doing what everybody told me. You know, go to the beach and try to stop the waves. Lay in your bed and ask God to reveal himself. Stare at a candle and try to meditate. You know, all this stuff. And none of it ever hit me. No, none of it ever was personal. And I said, look, I have a really hard time with what they're telling me to do. I don't like getting on my knees and praying. I don't like, you know, all this other stuff. I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in all of this. And he goes, I don't pray on my knees. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I see you in services. You're up, you're down, you're swinging the incense thing all over the place. He goes, oh, that's just Catholic aerobics. We do that for show, you know? And I'm like, oh, okay. And he goes, so what do you do? And he goes, well, I get up every morning and I sit in my easy chair. It looks out over the orchard. I have a bunch of spiritual books. I pick up my spiritual books and I read until I find an ideal that strikes me for the day, whether it's love, whether it's gratitude, whether it's being of service, you know, those are ideals and principles that we try to live in our lives. And he said, I find an ideal that feels like it means something to me at that moment. And then I meditate on that ideal. And he goes, and then when I'm done meditating, I get, I, I sit in my chair and I pray. And I thought, well, I can do that, you know? And when we were done having the conversation, he took me into his private library and he gave me books. I thought he's gonna try to convert me into being a Catholic, but he gave me books on Zen Christianity. He gave me books on meditation. He gave me books by C.S. Lewis, all these different books. And he said, you need to find a relationship with a higher power that works for you. And he wrote down on these three by five cards that I still have today on what contemplative meditation is. Because when you're new and you hear about meditation, you think you have to sit on a pillow in a lotus position and say home for an hour and not have any thoughts in your mind. And if a newcomer can sit down, and when I say new, if you're under five years sober, if you can sit on a pillow for an hour and not have any thoughts go through your head, God bless you. Because mine was like traffic on the 405. It was like, 
thought after thought after thought. And I said to an old timer one time, I said, you know, this thinking stuff when I try to meditate kills me. He goes, well, look at it like this. He goes, you might be standing on a corner and you see a Mercedes Benz goes by. You might think, well, that's a nice car. He goes, but you don't reach out and grab onto the bumper and get dragged down the street by it. You just say, well, that's a nice car and you let it go. And I went, yeah, that's true. He goes, well, when you have those thoughts during meditation, you can do the same thing. Just say, well, thanks for thinking, but you know, you don't have to own it. He used to have this great phrase, this one old timer. He said, look, just because you pick your nose doesn't make you a nose picker. He goes, you know, just realize that he goes, everybody's just a human being trying to be the best person they can be, you know? And so what that did was it allowed me to open up and try to search for my own process of prayer and meditation. And to this day, I still meditate twice a day. You know, I have a routine that I do every morning. I have another routine I do in the afternoon. Meditation is like going to the gym. It's a spiritual exercise that you do. It's something that expands your heart, expands your mind. It teaches you principles. It teaches you forgiveness. It teaches you all the things that we talk about in the 12 steps about releasing, you know, about caring for somebody, about letting go of resentments. You know, my favorite line, one of my favorite lines in the big book is on page 66, where it talks about resentments. It says it's our number one offender, you know, and the scariest part in that pay on that page is it talks about that if you hold on to resentments, the insanity of alcohol will return. You know, after that, it talks about you might drink and you might die. But I don't know about you guys. I do not need the insanity back in my life. I do not want I've seen people go out and I do not want that kind of insanity anywhere in my life, you know, and. Um, you know, so I was able to develop this practice. And when I say it's like the gym, because people go to the gym and you get stuck. You know, if you work out with a trainer, he might tell you, oh, you're getting stuck in this. Why don't we switch up your routine? Why don't you do different exercises? Try this, try that, try a different diet. And it's the same thing with meditation. You start might start getting distracted. You might start getting to point where you don't feel comfortable anymore. When I was new, if you wanted to learn about meditation, you either needed to find an old timer that really practiced it, or you need to find a monk like I did that practiced it. Nowadays, you guys get on Google and look up meditation. You have 8 million hits in about a second that tell you every form of meditation in the world that can teach you, you know, what you can do and how you can do it and how you can expand your heart and expand the way you think about things, you know. One of the things that you'll find if you study the 12 and 12 is, as I said, when I talked about the two paragraphs in the big book, when you go to the 12 and 12 and look at six and seven, there's 43 paragraphs in there. So clearly Bill Wilson decided when he wrote that book that there was a lot of information that he didn't either personally know about or hadn't experienced. And he wanted to share through more essays about what the process of the steps were. And when you get into the 12th step, you know, there's three pages that are basically a synopsis on the steps. And he talks about we pray on a daily basis for the causes and conditions in our life on a daily basis. Because he came to realize that every day, different triggers presented themselves to you. And it didn't matter if you were 30 years sober or 30 days sober. Every day is a new adventure. Every day, some days, is a new battle. And you have to look at what the battle is and how do you choose to go forward in it. And then the next three pages are basically about how to carry the message and what the 
the theme of carrying the messages. But then the next 13 pages in the 12 and 12 on the 12th step is about practicing these principles in all of your affairs. Because you will not truly be comfortable in your sobriety until you understand what practicing these principles in all your affairs means. Because as alcoholics, we love to cut corners. We love to think about, well, I don't need to pay that bill right now. Oh, I don't need to file my taxes yet. Oh, I don't need to do this. You know, or you think, well, I can get away with this behavior. Nobody's going to know that I'm doing this. Or for myself, I was a thief my whole life. And I don't mean like a thief like Brogan Banks, but my mother was a shoplifter. And I saw my mother shoplifting as a boy and I thought, well, that looks good. So why not? And one night I went into Ralph's because I needed milk and equal. And it was back in the days where you, could, you didn't have ATM cards yet. And I had just enough money for one or the other. So I bought the milk. And this is a Ralph's down the street from my house that I went to all the time. So I went over, I opened up a box of Equal, I grabbed a handful of packets and I stuck them in my pocket. And as I'm standing in line at the checkout, the manager comes up and taps me on the shoulder and goes, could you step over here for a minute? And I'm like, sure. And he goes, could you empty your pockets? And I'm like, oh shit. So I got thrown out of Ralph's for stealing Equal. You know, not even anything worthwhile. You know, it's not like I made a living off of stealing Equal or anything. But what it came to show me is that character defects manifest themselves sometimes in the smallest ways. And so the principle of not stealing showed me that, you know, what I was doing, how it could, how it could affect my life in so many ways, because he could have easily called the police or done, you know, whatever nonsense it is that we get involved in. And so when I learn how to practice the principles, all it really does is expand the way I look at the world. It expands the way I treat people. It expands the way I learn how to love myself and love other people, you know? And I'm not even sure how much, who's doing the timer on this? Seven. I have seven minutes left. All right. So when I was new, I'll just wrap up with this one story. When I was new on my second day, there used to be a meeting in LA in Beverly Hills called the Rodeo Group. And it was, you know, coat and tie and women with pearls and men and, you know, the whole thing. And it was hardcore old school AA, you know, it was that kind of Chuck Chamberlain world of old timers. And my friend said, there's an AA meeting on Friday night. It's the place to go. So he said, I'll meet you there. So I went to this big meeting, it's about 400 people. I have on my best Doobie Brothers t-shirt. I got crazy hair. I'm looking for my friend. He's not there. And I'm standing on the back wall with my arms crossed, scared to death, feeling so different than and apart from. And I'm standing there not knowing what to do. And all of a sudden, I see this man walking up the center aisle. And he's staring at me. And he's a very tall guy. He's my height. And then as he gets closer, I realize he's a guy that's on a TV show that I've seen before. And I'm like, Where, what's he doing? What's he doing here? And he comes right up to my face and he goes, hey, what's your name? I've never seen you here before. And I go, I'm Ken. And he goes, hey, I'm so-and-so. And he goes, how long are you sober? And I said, two days. He goes, man, it's so good to see another tall guy. I don't have to bend over to talk to. And he goes, do you have a seat? And I'm like, no, I'm supposed to meet a friend, but he's not here. And he goes, I got a seat for you. And he took me to the front row of Rodeo, introduced me to all the people he knew. 
He asked me if I wanted coffee or if I was hungry. And I said, yeah, I, you know, I'm just, I don't know what I'm doing. He went and he got me cookies. He got me a cup of coffee. He took me under his wing. He introduced me to everybody. He made sure I wasn't uncomfortable, you know? And to this day, he and I are still friends. It was one of the most important gestures that I was ever shown in AA. He saw that I was this big guy in the back of the room that was scared to death. And he wanted to make sure that I felt like I was a part of. And, um, and the point of this story is, and I don't know if how many of you ever heard Howard Poland speak. He sounded like Elmer Fudd. He had a little lisp when he talked. He passed away a few years ago at 45 years of sobriety. But I was over in Phoenix speaking at a convention and Howard lived over there when he left LA and he was part of a men's stag group over there. And um, thank you. And um, I got done speaking at this convention in Phoenix and I wanted to go outside and take my coat and tie off and just get some air. And I walk outside on this balcony and there's this young man standing there smoking cigarettes. And I'm like, hey man, how are you? What are you doing out here by yourself? You know, and just asking that question just opened up a flood of responses. He's like, you know, oh, my wife threw me out of the house. I can't see my kids. She won't let me back. And I, well, how long are you sober? And he goes, well, this time I've got two days. And I'm like, well, where do you live, man? And he goes, oh, I live in Gilbert, which is a suburb of Phoenix. And I said, well, I've got some friends over there. I said, they have this great men's stags meeting. They've got three men's stags. They got a Monday night meeting. Or, you know, I'm telling him all this. I said, come with me. We'll go find him. And I dragged this guy off and I found Howard and I found my friend Terry and I handed him over to him. And he became part of that men's stag group. And then I never thought another thing about him. You know, we never talked about him. And about five years ago, my friend Terry had just come back from London, going to a convention in London. And he calls me up and he goes, dude, you're not going to believe this. And I'm, what's that? He goes, you remember that guy, Nick, that used to live in Phoenix that you introduced us to that was part of the Wolf Pack for a while? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, he was in London with his wife. He goes, I hadn't seen him in years. And I said, that's great. What's he doing? And he said, well, there's one thing that we never knew. He said that night he told me that his plan was he was going to kill himself that night, that he was going to go just take himself out. And he said, if you hadn't brought him to the group, I don't know if he'd be around, you know. And he told me the story about what he'd been doing and how he'd gotten a job and how he had kids and how he was living in North Carolina and he had this big life. And I was like, that's just mind blowing, you know, absolutely mind blowing. And about, I don't know, maybe a year after that, I was in Florida talking at this place and I got done talking and my friend Terry was in the front row and I told that story and I'm down after the thing and I'm shaking hands with people and this guy comes up and goes, hi, Ken, I'm Nick. And I go, hi, Nick. And he goes, no. He goes, I'm that Nick. And I was like, what the fuck, you know? And I hadn't seen this guy in about 13 years. And I thought I was going to have a heart attack. You know, I just started crying uncontrollably. And my friend Terry knew he was there and they set me up just to freak me out, you know? And he took me back to his table and he introduced me to his wife and showed me pictures of his kids and all this stuff. And I'm like, and to this day now, he and I are in regular contact. He lives down in Tucson, Arizona. But all I did for him was what had been done for me. I saw somebody that looked uncomfortable, that looked scared, that was afraid of what he was in, involved in. And all he needed was a little help and a little direction. And I basically just passed him off the way that I was dealt with by my friend Ed, you know, and it's exactly what happened with Bill and Bob, you know, 
when Bill and Bob got together in Akron, Ohio, it was like the rock hit the pond and the ripple effect just started. And from those two guys, Alcoholics Anonymous got released out into the world. And all any one of us can do is just one alcoholic talking to another. You know, it's still just that simple. I sponsor guys now that have never been to a live meeting. They've gotten sober on Zoom, you know? I mean, it's absolutely insane what we're going through and how life has changed for us, you know? I have not been to my, my home group, my home group, which is the Tuesday Men's Stag, it's called the Lighten the Fuck Up group. It was a year ago this last Tuesday that that was the last face-to-face -face meeting I've been to. And one of the things I miss the most is walking into that meeting that I've been going to for 38 years, hugging the men, kissing them on the cheek, telling them that I love them, telling them how good it is to see everybody and to just be a part and be in the middle of what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. You know, the simple, simple center of just love and service, love and service, love and service. You know, it really does just break down to that. Oh, I have one minute left. So anyway, with that, you know, the one thing I've learned in 38 years is there's no secrets. You don't turn five and get the secret phone number to Bill Wilson's crypt. They don't give you a green book and say, forget the blue book. This is the one for winners. You know, I have the same big book I've been reading out of for 38 years. I have the same 12 and 12 for 38 years. You know, I've been through a few sponsors because they have this problem about dying when they get old, which kind of sucks, you know. But the reality of it is, it's a simple program and we complicate it. The 11th step says, seek through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him. Without that, there is no future because from there, there's only going forward or only going backwards. And the choice for me is to keep moving forward, to keep moving to the light, to keep moving to the love, and to have gratitude. If you're really in touch with the miracle of your recovery, you will walk around on the verge of tears from gratitude because we are so blessed to be here. One day at a time, we all have the same opportunities and the same chances to enhance our life and to move forward and to help other people. So thank you for letting me share.